verse 31 through 38, can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1674. John chapter 13, verse 31 through 38. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. When he was gone, that is, Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would part your blessing upon the preaching of your word this day. Lord, that it would not only be through me, but it would be to me. It would not only be heard, but it would be felt. It would not only be an entertaining and provocative message, but it would be life-changing impactful, blessed by your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure many are are familiar with what is often called the deathbed scene. Maybe some of you have experienced this yourself in your own life as you've gathered around a loved one, when they begin to pass on. And maybe if you have not experienced it in your own life, as someone who's gathered around the bed of a passing loved one, you've seen it in movie scenes and media. And uh, What seemed significant to me about the deathbed scene, particularly when the person is still cognizant, still able to speak, still able to communicate, is that everyone hangs on to the words which they're saying. Sometimes it even feels as if these people are gathering around this loved one, and this loved one wants to take this one last opportunity in this life to speak to those that he loves or she loves and to say the most important thing that they can say to them. It's heavy. And if you've experienced this in your own life, maybe you can even remember the last words which a loved one spoke to you. And you 
ponder those words as important, significant. Because they're the last words that that person said to you before they passed from this life. They were measured. They were placed upon them as a, as a time pressure, as, as something that needed to be significant. And you may ask, why? Why am I introducing our sermon this evening with this concept? Well, it is because our passage this morning marks the beginning of what is often called the farewell discourse of John's gospel. That is to say that in a very real sense, what we're looking at in the next few chapters of John as Jesus speaks to his disciples is somewhat like a deathbed scene. Christ understands that his time is now upon him, that he is about to go to the cross and do what no other man can do. These are the words which he wants to impart to his disciples before his death. It is not as if to say that the word of God made flesh is then making these words more significant or important than the other words which he has spoken, but it is to say that there is a weight to them. There's a weight to them because they're pressured with the time that is upon Christ. The leaving of Judas has now sparked into existence the number of events that are going to lead to Christ's betrayal, Christ's crucifixion, his death. And with that knowledge, Christ is speaking to his disciples now. What he wants them to know, what he wants to leave them with, at least for a, a moment, for the moment in which he will be dead and buried in the ground. That's what we're looking at today. Our theme this morning is, is Christ's death secures a new way of obedience for his followers. And I hope as we look at the scripture, you'll see why that comes out as a theme. The first point we're going to look at is the glory of the Son. What is Christ speaking of here in verses 31 through 33 when he's talking about how the Son of Man is going to be glorified and God is going to be glorified in him and God's going to glorify the Son of Man in himself? What does that mean? What's the significance of that? The second thing we're going to look at is the new way of the Son. This is a, a very significant phrase here. And Christ says, I give a new commandment to you. And how are we to understand the newness of that commandment, right? And then the last thing that we're going to look at is what I'm calling the old way of the world. And that is, Peter's pride and ignorance expresses a misunderstanding of what this new way of the Son is. What this purpose is in Christ going to the cross and being crucified. So let's look first at the glory of the Son. Verses 31 through 33, Christ says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now you may find it odd, as I do, that on the eve of Christ's betrayal, on the eve of his being mocked and beaten, of his being cast into the hands of the Romans, of his being uh, having a crown of thorns crushed upon his head, his back whipped, and him being wrongly crucified for a crime which he has not committed. 
which is all initiated with the understanding that what has just happened, verse 31, when he was gone, that is, when Judas had left to go and to do what he needed to do quickly as Christ instructed him. What you must do, go and do quickly. The Christ would then begin to explain and describe the glorification of the Son of Man. And what's unique about this phrase, what's unique about Christ's expression here, is that in the realm of theology, we have been very careful to rightly describe and rightly understand the phases of Christ's life, right? And Christ being born of the Virgin Mary, becoming man, living in this sinful, fallen, broken world, uh, under the temptation of sin, which he does not give into, and even all the way up into his crucifixion is often called his humiliation, his being made low. But John's gospel is very pointed, very careful to point out to us and to show us that in the eyes of Christ and of God himself, the humiliation and the glorification or the exaltation of Christ are seen as Different sides of the same coin. As one and the same. A way to express this would be, without humiliation, you do not have glorification. The Proverbs say, humiliation comes before exaltation. Humility comes before being lifted up. And this is a constant theme throughout the scriptures. One in which the life of Christ perfectly displays. So when Christ is saying here, now is the Son of Man glorified. He is saying now is the Son of Man glorified in the betrayal of his closest friend. Now is the Son of Man glorified in him being handed over. Now is the Son of Man glorified in his whip, his back being whipped. Now is the Son of Man glorified in his crucifixion. And in his death. It should give us a lens. It should give us a perspective upon the things which we go through. That we deem suffering. Humiliation. Because for Christ... And for God, the Father, there is glory in the suffering. Not because of the suffering itself, but because of what it produces. I think of the words of the book of Hebrews when it describes. Christ's gaze being set upon the cross. He spurned its shame. With a joy set before him, he went to the cross. Why? 
Because it is in the humiliation of Christ in his death that he gains for us salvation. And it is in the death of Christ that he gains for himself the name above all names. The name at which every knee, every tongue will bow, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do we understand that? Do we understand that the name that Christ is given is not the name Son of God who has existed before all eternity, but Son of Man who lived in time and space, who's part of our history. The name that he has, which is above all names, is a name that he gained because he, quote, learned obedience. The Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. We're told that God was reconciling the world to himself because God was in Christ. And if God is glorified in Christ, in the Son of Man, God will glorify the Son in himself. This, of course, speaks to the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What can be said of one must be said of, others, of the others. This is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is in going to the cross. Humiliation leads to exaltation. And that is a pattern which Christ performs for us, creates for us, and empowers us to live in verse 33, he says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. If you remember earlier in the gospel, this very gospel of John, Jesus spoke to the Jews, and he was saying, I'm about to go away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And this expression to the Jews was one of condemnation and judgment. He's saying, you cannot come because you will not believe. And here, Christ brings a softer tone to it in the midst of his, we could say, deathbed confession or deathbed statements to his disciples. When he says, with all tenderness, my children, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. Christ here is not speaking of the house that he will later describe. My, my father's house has many rooms and I go there to prepare a place for you so you can come and be with me. If he were speaking of that, he would, he would not be saying to his disciples, you cannot come. Because he's inviting his disciples and all us as well to that house. What he's saying here is the place to where I'm going, you cannot come because the humiliation that I am going to experience, that I am going to, that I am heading to, that of the cross, that of the pouring out of God's wrath upon me can only be done by me. It is I alone who can go to that place. It is I alone who can experience hell upon the cross. You cannot go where I am going. You cannot do for yourself what I have come to do for you. This is something we must hear again and again and again. 
as we renew our faith in Christ. It is not a renewal which is expressed in in our desire to earn what only Christ can earn for us, what only Christ has earned for us. That is why faith is called an expression with an open, empty hand. I have nothing. Give me what only you can give. The glory of the Son and the cross of shame. But let's look at the new way of the Son. As Christ begins to prepare his disciples for what awaits them in the wake of his death and his burial, of what he is going to be carving, a new path, you could say, a new way of obedience for his followers, he says these words, a new command I give you, love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. Now we may be very quick to ask, how and in what way is this a new command? Love one another. The whole of the Old Testament law is based upon love of God and love of neighbor. This is something that Christ himself proclaims very clearly the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the way of the Jewish calling of existence, of living for Yahweh. It is in love. Love of Him and love of other. Yet here we have, in the words of John's gospel, the statement from Christ, a new command I give you. Love one another. And this is what I want you to understand this morning. That this command is not new because it's never been spoken before. This command is not new because it's never been expressed before. This command is new, it's newness, comes in these words. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Well, how does that make this a new command? Love one another. Let me give you an example. Oftentimes we speak of Old Testament, New Testament. Testament simply means covenant. So when we look at the Old Testament, what we're to think of is the Old Covenant. And when we look at the New Testament, what we're to think of is the New Covenant. Yet all of us here this morning confess that the covenant of grace, the gracious The gracious disposition of God toward us in Jesus Christ is not something that comes in the first pages of Matthew as the New Testament begins. It is something that the Heidelberg Catechism, the Holy Gospel, is displayed for us even in the garden, in the patriarchs, 
and in the prophets and signs and shadows. So the new covenant given in Christ's blood is not new because it has never been expressed earlier. It is new because in the coming fulfillment of Christ, he is bringing it to its full measure, its fullest revelation, its clearest view. Therefore, the command to love and the love of God has been seen, we could say, in signs and in shadows all throughout the scriptures. But in the coming of Christ, in the coming of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, in the coming of the word made flesh, we see now most clearly the revelation of God's love. It is not until Christ had come into this world and lived among us and died for us and was raised to life for us that we could understand the words of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, the new way of the Son is a way which is paved by Him. It is paved by His example, by His life. That is why when Christ says, a new command I give you, love one another, He says it because He says, as I have loved you. As I have loved you, so you must love One another. Christ becomes for us the prime example of the love of God and the love of neighbor. Therefore, Christ, in bringing this new way, a fuller way, a fuller revelation of the love of God, He says to his disciples on the eve of his going away, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And he expresses that this love, the love which he has displayed to his inmost friends, to his disciples, the love which he is going to the cross to purchase for us is the love which is to be the most important mark of a Christian. Francis Schaeffer once said, this is not a direct quote, more a bit of a paraphrase, There have been many ways in which Christians chose to mark themselves. Some would wear silly hats. Some would wear silly haircuts. Some would wear priestly robes and garments and vestments. Some would wear 
crosses of jewelry around their neck. These were all ways in which Christians have chosen to mark themselves as different, as one who is a follower of Christ. But in these words that Christ speaks to us this morning, the new way of the Son, he says the most important mark of the Christian is not something that can be physically worn upon the outside, but it is the way in which we display love to each other. Do you understand that's why it is so hurtful? When people are hurt, betrayed by their church family. By the ones who have been told to love them. And to display the love of God and the love of Christ to the world in the way in which they love each other. And you need to understand here, this new command that Christ is giving is not something that he's giving that he's saying, do within your own power. Force the will from inside of you to just, to just, with all of your strength, exert yourself as much as you possibly can to love each other. Now, trust me, I'm a very unlovable person. If you try to do that in your own strength and power, you will not find yourself able. What Christ here is calling us all to do is to set our eyes upon the love which he displayed for us and dying upon the cross for our sins and being raised to new life for our sanctification. Christ is saying that in me I have given you the power to love. To love each other as I have loved you. Not in your own strength, but in mine. To love one another as I have loved you. That's the new way of the Son. Lastly, we have the old way of the world. Now, I find it interesting that as Christ here, as I expressed to you, speaking of his death and preparation for his death is saying these last words to the disciples. When Christ here is declaring that his death is going to secure a new way of of spirit-filled obedience for his followers. And Christ here is instructing his disciples of a new command to love one another. Simon Peter, gotta love that guy. He asked him, Lord, where are you going? And you remember, Christ said, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, if you're reading this, it's pretty clear that as Christ is expressing this new command to love one another as he has loved them, that Peter is somewhere else. He's thinking about, why, where's Jesus going? Why is he saying he's going to leave? 
You think he heard that? I don't think so. And Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. How are we supposed to understand that phrase? With the phrase earlier, where I'm going, you cannot come. Christ here says now to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. What Christ here is talking about is an order of priority. An order of priority which Peter must understand. That Peter must get. And that is for the Christian, Christ always goes before. For the Christian, Christ always goes before. He is the way maker. He is the path paver. And when the Christian gets into trouble is when they begin to think that they can go on before Christ. That they can take the lead. That Christ doesn't know what he's doing, so they'll figure it out. Christ here says to Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. What he's saying is, what I go to do, what God, the Father, has foreordained for me to do, my glorification and his glorification in me, of going to the cross, Peter, that is not something you can do. That's not something you can do for yourself. You cannot earn for yourself the salvation which I am going to provide for you. But Peter, in his ignorance and in his pride, declares back to Jesus, the Lord of glory, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, I want you to hear, and I want you to grasp the great irony of Peter's words. I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you, Christ. Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. It is not an irony expressed rightly When we have the priority, the order of priority, right? When I declare now, Christ, my life is yours. I will lay down my life for you. I will give it to you. We have many martyrs throughout church history that have declared and expressed in their very own deaths the truths of those words. I will lay down my life for you, Christ. The irony in Peter's words comes because he is declaring this to Jesus prior to Christ laying his life down for Peter. Prior to him laying down his life for Peter, Peter is saying, I will lay down my life for you.
Now, we shouldn't be too hard on Peter because we know throughout the many gospel accounts that we have that the disciples were very difficult to get through and to grasp and to understand the significance of the events which they were wrapped up in. Difficult to understand the responsibility, the duty, and the purpose of Christ's coming. As we've said earlier, in their minds, Christ was to be a worldly, political, war Messiah. And that's why Peter here doesn't understand that what Christ is speaking of, of going away, of being condemned upon the cross, of being, being punished as the sinner. That why can't Peter go with him? Why can't he follow him now? Why can't he lay down his life for him? Zealous Peter. Ignorant of the true and the full purpose of God in sending Christ Jesus. Prideful in his own ability. Prideful in his own desire to be True, zealot for Christ, has not fully come to realize that before Peter can declare the words to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you, he must first have the laid down life of Christ for him. This is something that we must all grasp and understand, is it not? That before we can do anything, we must first have Christ. Before we can pursue the Christian life rightly, not seeking to earn anything, not seeking to earn for ourselves a righteousness of our own, we must first have the righteousness of Christ. Before we can die to our sins and to our pride and to our selfishness, we must first overcome our ignorance and embrace the death of our sin in Christ. Peter doesn't understand this yet, but he will. Christ says, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And in an attempt to humble Peter in preparation for the torment of his soul that he is soon to experience, Christ declares back to Peter, will you really lay your life down for me? I tell you the truth before the rooster crows. You will disown me three times. Now it is not insignificant that we have back to back the betrayal of Judas prophesied, and the the denial of Peter prophesied by Jesus. We are meant to see these two very similar but opposing characters together. Judas is one without faith, and upon realizing what he has done in betraying Jesus Christ with no hope 
for reconciliation, no peace with God, he goes and he kills himself. But we are told, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, that Peter, upon that night, when he hears the rooster crow, having betrayed his dear Savior, his dear Christ, three times, looks and he sees Christ with a, with a face of grace and mercy, gazing at him in that courthouse, the court square. And Peter goes and he weeps bitterly. We're told by Jesus, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you have turned, encourage your brothers. You see, Judas's ignorance and his pride led to his eternal condemnation. But Peter's ignorance and pride led to his restoration and his ability to encourage and uplift his brothers in the Lord. What is the difference? How did Peter overcome the old way of the world and find hope in the new way of the Son? I have prayed for you, Peter. Let this be an encouragement to all of you especially to those of you who have experienced in your life or even experiencing right now dark times where you feel overwhelmed by temptation and sin, that if you belong to the Lord, if you belong to Him, He is interceding for you now before the Father. He is praying for you. And we have the promise of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, That he will not let us fall ultimately into the internal condemnation of Judas. But that he is praying for us. And once we have turned, we will be able to encourage, to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. With a testimony of the faithfulness of God to us. That's what Peter is being given here. That is what Peter is being taught in his betrayal and his denial of Jesus Christ. He is being taught to never again rely upon himself and his own strength, but in his greatest strength of his fervency and his zealousness for the Lord, he is even then to be pinned upon Christ in the weakness. Is that not what we're told by Paul when he says, when the tormenting flesh, thorn of flesh, was given to him by Satan, that Christ told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for in your weakness I, my power is seen. What we have here in this interaction between Jesus and Peter is a wonderful representation, a gift to us as believers to once again remind ourselves to not rely upon ourselves, 
and our service to Christ, but upon him wholly, to lean into him. And now that we have this order of priority right, that Christ has gone before us, that Christ has gone before us to lay down his life for us, we can now declare, Christ, we lay our lives down for you. Just as Peter came to know, following the death of Jesus Christ, following his denial of Christ and his restoration by Christ on that beachfront, when he told Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Just as we know from church history that Peter went on to declare even with his own death that he will lay down his life for Christ because Christ has laid down his life for him. We can do that. Not in our own strength, not in our own pride, not in our own ability, but because Christ has purchased that for us. Here, in the deathbed scene that is beginning of Christ and his farewell discourse to his disciples is declaring to them, my death is going to secure a new way of obedience for you. And his death has done that for us, not only forgiven us of our sins, but calls us by the power given to us and poured out upon us to live a life of love for each other, marked by the way that Christ has loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would bless us as we leave from this place. Help us, Lord, to pursue the new way of the Son, Jesus Christ, to leave, away, leave the old ways of the world, to cling not to our own strength and our own pride, to do away with our ignorance and to realize that Christ, you have laid your life down for us. And because of that, love that you have displayed for us, you give us the strength to love each other and to lay down our life for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.